0: Welcome to Drive Digital Success, your behind-the-scenes podcast about Formula One and the technology driving it, presented by Chris Medland and Mandy Carter, powered by IONOS, first-class cloud and IT infrastructure. Hello and welcome to what is the final episode of our first series of the Drive Digital Success podcast, brought to you by IONOS. I'm Chris Medland.
1: And I'm Mandy Carter.
0: And today we're going to be getting technical with Haas Head of Engineering Operations, Ben Agathangelou to talk about just how you go about designing a Formula One car. Hello, Ben, and thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the IONOS podcast. You're the Head of Engineering Operations here at Haas, but can you explain to our listeners what exactly that means?
2: What does that mean? I suppose I've spent the year trying to define it properly. It's been an evolution for me in the last year, having come from effectively setting up and running the aero department here. A lot of backfill with good staff and the group in that regard runs itself very well. What I've evolved into doing is effectively running anything that's associated with engineering operations, which basically means business systems, organizational planning and Also, because of my background in aero, I've maintained, if you like, a function of the concept and application for the car, particularly notable this year because the regulations have been so different and so new that we've had to draw on as much experience as we possibly can to understand what it is that was needed for this set of regulations. Another key part of my function this year has been, in fact, to, to deal with the FIA. I don't know how much you're familiar with the fact that as F1 teams, we all have representation, at a table of technical discussion, which is called attack meeting, technical advisory committee. And in that meeting, um, each team has a representative where effectively during this year, it's been more prevalent than I recall having done it for the past five or six years, where presence has been prevalent in the sense that we've had to be particularly proactive and particularly engaged with ensuring that regulations evolve in a kind of sensible executable rational manner from demands of increased safety from demands of performance from demands of raceability with you know the car following arguments which i'm sure we'll talk about later so that has absorbed a lot of my time this year and having that role means that the interface in terms of technical function with all of the group the design office the aero department is quite live in terms of interpretation application and utilization of regulations as they're presented so Quite a varied role because there's, and I suppose having done it for as long as I have, I kind of dabble in as many things as is needed. We're a small team. We have more demands upon individuals because we need to get these things done. Some teams might split my role into three or four, you know, particular tasks. Can't do that here.
0: You've got a lot on your plate then. Yeah, yeah something like that. So what's your organisation like now? What's an aerodepartment like now at Haas? How big is that?
2: Well, we've got 22 aerodynamicists. And they're just the aerodynamicists. Then we've got a CFD group that is of uh, eight people who are basically doing methodology development in their supplying tool sets that are available to all the aerodynamicists. Then there are a group of model designers that support the aerodynamicists. Obviously, we don't have the burden as a team of having the wind tunnel support stuff because we rent the wind tunnel facility and all the support infrastructure is there from Ferrari to allow us to do that. So we don't have to do maintenance and, and all those kinds of tasks. So in terms of operative elements that develop the car on the aerodynamics side, we're talking about 40, 45 people. With respect to then on the design side, then we've got a group of designers that are both here and Dallara that variably go from 35 to 70. So depending on the time of the year. So yeah, different scale, although relatively small in modern terms. So Mandy, what's the size of the
0: development team at Ionos and where are they based? How has that grown in recent years?
1: Our development team isn't a finite size as it's always growing in line with our customers' needs and our own need to further optimize our product offering. We haven't assigned or defined a number to how big the team should be, if that makes sense. Basically, for each project that requires dev work, the complexity of the work is scoped and an appropriately sized team is assigned. I think the main thing is that we always try to find the right brains, if you will, for each piece of work which means that often our team are both cross-functional and cross-locational. We have devs contributing from across Europe in Germany, Romania, Spain, UK, and further afield. This recent shift to working virtually and putting the right tooling in place to do so has really opened up the possibility of working with, you know, the right team for the task.
0: And the team that Ben describes is to create just two race cars that compete each race weekend. How many people or clients are not servicing with that setup you've just described?
1: Yikes. I'm honestly not sure you can compare the two organizations fairly. The Haas team is tasked with creating only two products, the cars, right? And those cars must work perfectly over a three-day weekend. During the week or on longer breaks between the races, the team can then make repairs or optimize the car for the next race. At Ionos, we have over eight and a half million customer contracts. And each contract is basically a separate project with a specific and bespoke requirement based on the customer's needs, right? It could be as simple as a website or an email server or even a really complex cloud instance. And we have to make sure that all of these different end products are available every second of every day. So of course, it's imperative that we provide 24-7 customer support from technical experts. And we also have to think about things like always provisioning enough infrastructure and power to supply our customers at a moment's notice when their tech needs grow. So just having everything on hand and planning ahead.
0: Eight and a half million customer contracts. That's huge. <laughs> I didn't realize we were talking such big numbers that I'm learning so much today. But Ben, it's incredible how much it's grown in that period that you've talked about. I mean... That also sounds like a lot of people to deal with and a lot of aspects to deal with. So, what does your day to day job look like? I mean, like, what does a typical working day look like for you? If there is such a thing, certainly here as well, we're sat in Maranello where Haas are based alongside Ferrari. So, I guess that helps on that aspect being right here to leverage that partnership.
2: Yeah, obviously one key part of my role is engagement and maintenance of a relationship in terms of the technical interfaces that we have to have with Ferrari when we're doing installations of powertrains and the, what are known as the TRCs the transferable components that we're allowed to have. Clearly, we need knowledge and awareness of how they're evolving in terms of how we integrate it with our car. So there's a relationship that consumes some time in order to maintain awareness and understand also how things are evolving because especially in a year like this obviously things are changing quite rapidly as things evolve on their side and we need to keep abreast of that so that's one key part the FIA as I said from time to time can be a dominance of days because the amount of work that needs to be handled to if you like prepare and be aware of reading a tome of regulations becoming familiar with them It doesn't happen over a day it happens over months because it's evolving and changing, and and obviously there's a lot of interpretation that underlies it. So I do invest some time in trying to mature understanding and, and delve into interpretation, which I can then share in regular development discussions that we have with the area department or the design departments. Often I'm tapped frequently by all the guys in the design office and in aero with respect to what do you think of this and can we get away with that and what would you do here and how can we justify that and they're good because they incite that exchange of if you like sensitivity that we have for the nature of regulations and experience and free thinking ideas of people that aren't burdened by my history you know by their own so i think that's if you like the main function that's individual and then there are much more combined aspects of, of my role with Simone Lester, that is, if you like, strategizing with respect to what we might be doing in a medium term with business systems. The fact that we're a relatively new design group here, we're introducing new design tools and product management tools. And these things need thought planning, strategizing in terms of introductions, so they don't impact what we do day to day in a in a negative way. But if you don't do them, you build inefficiency into a system. So we're trying to maintain the thought of how to extract value in continuum from the group of people that we have.
0: And you talk about the team here in Marinello. It's a new setup. I think it's in the last 12 to 18 months it's really come together. Yeah. So it's clearly sort of a, an evolving situation here, but a big task on your hands, certainly this year with a mm. brand new set of regulations. So let's talk about the actual challenge of designing a Formula One car you don't start with a blank sheet of paper and just draw the fastest thing you can what's the framework you start with where's the starting point for someone going right here are the new regulations who's come up with those and how do we then turn that into a Formula One car
2: this year more than ever I think for probably all, without exception of the 26 or so years that I've worked in F1, I think every year has had an element of evolution from previous. So knowledge that you brought from previous years accumulated and therefore you had a basis of a concept that you were carrying over. Even when cars went, was it 98, where we narrowed the cars from 2 metres to 1.8, even then, yes, it was a massive architectural change, but really the underlying concept wasn't different. This set of regulations is completely different, and it is much more, you know, I I drew analogies with IndyCar, for example, that I did in 2012. That was an IndyCar that, if you like, that was a clean sheet of paper that was a an aerodynamicist saying how do i get the most performance out of a platform that i don't have regulations for and it was quite easy and the impact is that you spend less money achieving a given performance level because you're not constrained this set of regulations has similarities in the sense that it uses the ground effect of the underbody so that historical experience if you like is put into the pool so those of us and and i'm not alone aaron melvin who's head of aero you know has got a lot of that experience he's worked in that world as well in the u.s and so I think between us the basic architecture had some fundamentals that we thought were necessary then you look into regulations in more detail because at that stage you're not absorbing everything that is being restricted upon you imposed upon you as restriction then the availability or the evolution of of regulation means that you build a picture in CAD in your mind of where your restrictions are and those ideals that perhaps you know of, be they coupling of wing elements, camber of underbodies, level of diffusion, coupling of upper wings with diffuser, those things you have some home truths as a technician, as somebody, who, an engineer who has that basis, but whether you can implement them in context of regulations that have been also designed by engineers, and obviously I'm trying to preclude you from doing so, then you're in that kind of cat-mouse. How do you get what you want? in context of what they're trying to preclude you from doing. It's not quite as black and white as that, but the evolution that really proceeds in that first phase, and we're talking about back in probably November, October, November of 2020, is really that cohesion. And don't forget, regulations were not converged at that point. So you're doing work, you're running CFD, and then you're going back to the finance and you're saying, well, you don't really want to do it like that. You want to do it like this because you're trying to push your own agenda and they kind of get it but then they don't and so again there's a little bit of horse trading there and all teams are doing this in parallel so it's quite an organic kind of convergence eventually you put something down which is what you think is your best guess and it is a clean sheet of paper it is a best guess because this is a car that you haven't designed before it's got different characteristics that you've never seen before it's a bit of indie car there's a bit of gp2 as it was, F2, and the front wing is, I don't know, a little bit IndyCar that is probably 2014, 15 IndyCar. But coupling them is not something you've done, so you have to try, and that's what we, where we use CFD. And we use, really, the early work was all CFD. It was all the proof of concept, the establishment of interactions, the understanding of flow regimes. And then after that's when the difficulty starts, because once you have a basic viewpoint of something which you... Feel is a coherent concept, then it becomes something that's much more complex because then there's a questioning of actually, are your suppositions correct? Because you've used some kind of bias, some intellectual bias to say, I've started somewhere. And the most difficult thing to encourage people to do is to say, Yeah, just because we've said that, now throw it away because now we have to question what it is that we thought we knew. And so you start down that path, and that path is a coupled exercise between. CFD as a simulation and wind tunnel as a simulation, one correlating the other. We don't have the advantage of being able to run anything full scale, so we have to learn that correlation aspect, which we're going to learn in the next few weeks. But with the experience of what we expect to see in those regards, we use a lot of that combination of knowledge that all of us have, to take the best position with what we think is going to be the best compromise of choice of type of loadings, type of interactions of flow. They're really the prime arguments that happen in the first phase of the job. It doesn't sound like it's a very linear process. It's not. It's a very kind of iterative review, critique, self-critique, and eventually you get something where you think, okay, I think we've understood the basics. Now we can stabilize a platform and then you have to start thinking about installing all the bits that you need to drive the thing so the powertrain comes in suspension kinematics come in and all these things need to be integrated in parallel to the critique which is the aerodynamic concept that permits you to package call and pursue performance
0: do you ever get to a point of having a whole car on a computer screen where you're like that's our concept that's what we're working with or is it actually developed in different sections and pieces
2: Uh, always have our car because the car's too heavily too much an interactive device it's even though we evolve and you'll see how we've updated the front wing that isn't just you know done in an isolated manner it's everything is always around a base console right now we have a baseline which we've released the car that will run at test one and that's our reference and that's been detailed and mapped and characterised and has all the characteristics of cooling and wing levels and what have you. And that's the baseline on which we evolve and we evolve incrementally on that. So there might be a floor development or there might be a front wing development or, or what have you. But there's always a status of uh, a car characterization.
1: During that process then, when you're designing a car and you're getting updates almost to the regulations and feeding in your own feedback... Is this all happening through CFD at this stage?
2: No, I mean variably. We would have until probably February of 2020. It was only CFD, mm-hmm. but after that, it was very heavily wind tunnel as well. So we were doing both programs, and, and you know from what Gunter's told you that we had a discussion back in October, November of 2020, where we said really 21 we know is going to be a beep, and so we need to turn our attention to. I let you fill in the beep. Um, <laughs> we know that that we have to turn our attention. To and we've got a finite budget, and we need to make sure we put it to best use. So we geared immediately end of the year, and the clarity of structure of the team only really happened over Christmas of 2020. So we came back in in January, and we really had some plans in terms of establishing a revised CFD function and you know, building a model for the 22 car. And and so just the, the latency associated with that meant that we got going probably mid-February.
0: So when you start then, let's talk about the process a little bit then of, of putting a wind tunnel model into the wind tunnel. So you've got the regulations evolving, you're trying to interpret them, you've, you've come up with what looks like what we will assume is a Formula One car on a screen, on a very technical screen. Then how many people are involved with then taking that And creating something to run in the wind tunnel to get different results. And how different are those results? How important is that step?
2: In terms of number of people, I think all the people I just described previously at the beginning, everyone was involved at the beginning of the year because if you think the detail associated with defining physical components for the whole car, you're not doing updates, you're doing a whole car. So a lot of work, a lot of resource, and also there's a lot of infrastructure at that point because the underlying the bodywork of a, of a scale 60 percent scale model is an infrastructure that was previously pitched at old regulations so that needs adjusting and modifying and in terms of operationally that the model has a functionality of load measurement and pressure measurement which was the same it's not that we had to redo all that because that broadly carried over but in terms of dressing it with one of the challenges for example is quite a different floor mm-hmm. so the diffuser last years has been flat oh, the, the floor sorry has been flat whereas this year all of the floor is a molded surface that means you can't necessarily afford to say i'm going to make it out of a plate of aluminium because how do you form it you're going to machine it out of solid or or, you know mold it in carbon but all of those things need to be considered and that's uh, part of the if you like the know-how of a team to know how to engage different materials and achieve development ability within a tool a development tool like the wind tunnel model So then uh, six weeks, eight or so to get a process of a kind of a launch surface in CFD, if you like, that you think is a good place to start and have a a wind tunnel model operative. So
0: that's quite a long time in the grand scheme of things, is it not? That
2: that is a long time. But I'm talking about a process that, if you like, it's not time critical at that point because CFD is dominating. And clearly we were in a phase, I mean, I think in any case, you'd be talking about four weeks for a complete model. Because you're talking about a capacity in a model shop that's finite and designed and scaled and budgeted for development ability. When you have to encourage it to develop a complete car, you're making all of the infrastructure, you're you're designing stays and supports for floors. You're doing all this extra work that you wouldn't normally do when you're just doing a new wing.
0: And that'll pay off later down the line. Of course, you do it once. And then
2: when you do development, you're doing it every week. Mm. You know, you're doing new parts. We're three days in, three days out, three days in, three days out. Then it doesn't stop the machine. But when you're doing that first model, it's a realistic amount of time.
0: If we link in actually the Arnos partnership here, how much of the info that you're then gaining, both from... CFD, I guess, is maybe easier to share the results of via the cloud or with the different members sites. of the team. Yeah, being a team that's split over so many sites. When it's wind tunnel work, is that a trickier process or is it almost more important then to rely on something that can only take place in one set location that you then have to share the results of across the multiple sites?
2: Yeah, I mean, our connectivity and the connectivity that we have between our sites permits absolutely real-time transfer of availability of data at all sites so for the first five six years of our existence we had the cfd group in the u.s and our cluster was in the u.s and we had to rely on launching cases from italy and receiving data from the cluster so that was heavily dependent on bandwidth i'm not saying it was perfect but it worked for that amount of time now we still have our cluster in the u.s but our, all of our function, all of our technical function, engineering function is here. So we still launch cases in the US and then we receive data, which we now, with increasing bandwidth, which has increased over the six years, we're in a position where guys can see a turnaround of cases in four or five hours and see results. And that their results are being generated in the US. So, you know, what should be a real big limit, it's not... I'm not saying it wouldn't be better if it was you know, more efficient, but there are reasons for the, the way that we're organised. We're able to use those facilities regardless of where they're placed. Obviously, it's part of our structure and has been since the start.
0: And when you have then moved on to the wind tunnel model and you've got what's, again, I imagine still evolving with, you said, only 90% regulations. So I think that's fascinating that there's still 10% there being defined at such a late stage. It's still happening now. Yeah, well, There you go. Like you said, a lot of your days taken yeah. up with having these discussions with yeah. the FIA. I think it's remarkable that as we talk about a brand new car coming into being and it's like well that's still the rules you're playing to are still being defined but mm. you said about updating and, and how much quicker that can happen how regularly are you going through a process then of okay we've set this is our starting point and when do you really set your starting point of okay we're committing to this is our car and now from there we need to improve it
2: you're talking about now releasing freezing the car that goes to track the full-scale car and yeah, the, the process of release, we call it, from the aero world into the design world and therefore production starts really in September last year. Because the chassis, for example, had an immense amount of increased uh, attention demand by virtue of the regulation changes that imposed much higher safety requirements demands structural demands on the chassis so they needed more time to be able to do project work design testing and so on so that uh, chassis would have been released back in september that's the, the monocoque and then from there there's a scaled kind of release process that runs from september until pretty much christmas a few releases straddle for us post christmas but uh, things like brake ducts and devices that what we'd consider be tuning like floor edges rather than the body of the floor body of the floor may go to design and be frozen in that regard in early December and then its addenda fences or what have you arrive in in January then you're giving a production process, a design and production process, time to stagger the design process from September to Christmas. And then production is really working off, say, an eight-week cycle or a 10-week cycle with a floor, for example, to achieve delivery of components as they are arriving in these weeks now.
0: So that kind of shows the stages nice and clearly, actually, of Going from design idea, sealed it off. Okay, that's what we're going to go with. Sending it. That's to Delara. Getting get um, that info. Not,
2: not in all cases. The way that we're organised now is the design office split between Delara and here uh, in the office over there. And the division of certain areas of the cost. Some has been managed here. Some is managed there. That has needed some management as well to ensure that the communication is transparent and the referencing of you know working off common references for CAD models is established. That's needed some establishment this year as well. So yeah, the design between Dallara and Maranello, and then the release of components to production is via the UK office, because the PMO group and all the purchasing group is in the UK, and they distribute what isn't made at Dallara, and some parts are, are made with a lot of manufacturing companies in the UK. That's That's what the UK part is doing, apart from housing the race team.
0: It's it's definitely an international car then that's that's coming together when you do that. And I mean, if we had four or five hours to do this podcast, we could go through each component and sort of the work that's done on those. But one key part I wanted to speak to you about that you mentioned was the chassis and releasing that. Now, for um, many listeners that maybe don't understand the differences or the actual constraints of what that means, that's essentially the safety cell monocoque that the driver sits in. Yeah, No wings, nothing like that. That's when you strip the car back to its most basic form, and it looks like a little tub. That's right. How constrained are you for that design, or how creative are you being even with that component?
2: There are parts that need to be, because all parts are are air licked, and so considerations in terms of form, particularly on the underside in terms of interaction with the floor, is, is important to consider. Having said that, it is heavily constrained as a design, because its prime purpose is the safety of the driver, and so there are minimum section templates for the apertures minimum sections for the walls that are around the driver the tube if you like the bit where the driver's legs and and pedals are is a volume allowance in which we can define a shape which is of a given certain size you can vary the way that size evolves in in terms of its side view for example but its sections have to follow a certain dimension one of the parts that is if you like important from a developmental point of view is the, the roll hoop Because the roll hoop behind the driver needs, obviously, to satisfy the structural requirements in terms of rollover. But there is also a key part in terms of feeding engine and feeding other cooling requirements in terms of the intake and its shape with respect to it is quite a blockage element ahead of the rear wing. So it does need to evolve in parallel with what you're doing downstream, but you tend to kind of have to focus on those items earlier in the process. And make decisions because you need to release those items earlier, knowing that there's a bigger lead time in terms of design effort.
0: I was gonna say actually, what is the lead time on the chassis then? Because that's I mean a huge piece of carbon fiber, isn't it? Is it one bit or is it bonded? It's generally made in two parts. Okay. And
2: it's split and bonded, two open shells. And the lead time is really this year more than ever, there's a there's been a longer lead time in design. Because of these increased safety requirements, much higher loads on lateral push, for example, the chassis has to resist a certain enormous 350 kilonewtons of load over a pad of 200 millimetres of this kind of size and not sustain any damage. So it's all part of that kind of increased cocooning that's being demanded and it's all well motivated. But that needed some clever structural design to ensure that that was attainable with minimum weight because obviously weight's a problem you've heard simone talk about weight already that it is a challenge for us because all these increased demands for safety is adding weight even though we're trying to make these cars you know as high performance as possible which is a bit contrary to that requirement so going back to the chassis the chassis yeah has had that increased demand of design time this year which is why we had to be a little bit ahead of a process of release. And probably it had six or eight weeks associated with just definition and sample testing and this kind of thing. And then inevitably there's a what we call a dummy chassis. A dummy chassis because it's represents if you like in a coarse way what you're trying to attain in terms of its structural performance you're not too worried about its consistency from an aero performance point of view and then the real chassis then follows it the first chassis and then we aimed our first chassis for end of just before christmas so you know that was a process that was about three months
0: but then for the other parts obviously it's a shorter lead time but you said about the constraints on the chassis in general how much freedom do you feel you have when you're designing an f1 car to chase ideas to Create what you want to create, and how much is actually just responding to and trying to find ways around constraints? Is it the latter more than the former?
2: It's a good question because the answer isn't as obvious as it might have first seem. It's clear, everybody's spoken about the fact that these regulations are much more constrictive. They're constrictive in terms of trying to attain a particular target of wake. But within those restrictions, of which there have always been restrictions, there is still margin for individual application and interpretation, both in the interpretation of the regulations, but also in terms of application of surfaces. The difficulty is, is, as the regulations become more constraining, you will put things in this space, you will have it look like this, then the work that you're doing as an engineer, as an aerodynamicist, is really much more fine and much more refined in terms of what you do with local surfaces and surfaces of interaction and that means that the development cost time and money is higher because you're changing bulk surfaces when you develop when you've got a wing that has to look like this but there's infinite freedom within boundaries of incidences of profiles and what have you then you can't put fence on anymore to tune what you're trying to tune in terms of wake you have to work on the wing which means you make a wing you don't add fences fences cost nothing wings cost a lot even at model scale so it's a little bit of a contrary position when you're talking about a budget cap world where somewhat controversially you're given regulations that end up costing you more to develop the model thereof
1: when it's all so refined though do you ever find yourself sitting down with a pen and paper and just sketching out an idea thinking in that way or is everything now so complex that you have to be doing cfd like working on computers
2: much 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 more engaged with viewing the car within regulation context on cad because there's much more detail to consider than just if you like the base idea but there's still space for that imagination and that kind of self-interpretation which often you'll come up with the idea and then you'll worry about whether you can legalize it later because otherwise if you constrain the mind too much then you're not thinking as a free spirit you're thinking as a machine and we don't want our guys to do that they need to be open
0: if we look further down the process, you've got the car, you've come up with a base design, you've released it, you started doing updates. At which point do you stop paying attention to the process that's going on, if ever, and keep just thinking or you know, reverting back to, right, how can I improve that part and go back into the design aspect? Or are you looking at the end result and seeing it on track and then having to react to that as well?
2: Yes, all of it is relevant. There's Nothing has more weight than the other Because ultimately, the car is what counts. The performance of the car on the track is what counts. If there are things that we need to learn in terms of how the car's behaving, say, aerodynamically There's obviously reliability, which is a more tangible reaction that's demanded of the process. But if we're talking about performance of, say, the aerodynamic platform, there are going to be lessons that we haven't yet learned because it's a different level of correlation that we're going to be experiencing at full scale. They're things that we have to adapt and we've already designed experiments that can enable us to do that. Once we have that, that throws itself, that kind of embeds itself into the more standard development process. And there's equal consideration given to, you know, correlation lessons learned and developmental ideas and tools and, you know, business systems, because everything builds efficiency in our understanding and therefore efficacy in terms of our implementation. There isn't an exception. Everything runs in parallel.
0: So, Mandy, how often does Ionos have to look at an overall product when developing it, or are you able to update things in a much more small specific areas more regularly?
1: So in IT, we have a definite advantage compared to an F1 car. At Ionos, we use agile methodology to launch new products. Simply explained, this means we launch a new product at a really early stage in its development, like when it's what we call a minimum viable product, kind of the minimum working solution acceptable to roll out to early customers. So after the initial rollout, we then use feedback from those early adopters to optimize a product or even redefine some aspects of it and then we do the same all over again. Basically, with every refinement and rollout of new features, we launch, gather feedback, refine, launch, gather feedback, refine. And in this way, we continually improve the product until it eventually has all the features that are required. This is also a really nice way to break a project down into chunks to allow us to focus on separate aspects of the product. So one week we can focus on security, the week after we may look at implementing a better user experience, and the week after that may be all about making the product more powerful or faster. But clearly, Clearly, this really wouldn't work in F1. Once Mick Schumacher is out on that track, the car has to be 100% perfect in every aspect. You can't get him out on that track and say, hey, sorry, dude, your steering wheel is a bit shaky today, but we'll tackle that next week.
0: And Ben, when you then get an end result and you've got a car that you'll roll out, which we know does evolve over a season certainly this year there'll be a lot of updates to the car and it'll change very much from what we say the first test to the last race or at least to some degree when you look at it do you look at something and think that looks beautiful it's going to be quick or do you care what it looks like or in your mind is the only thing that matters is a stopwatch
2: yeah the only thing that matters is the stopwatch that's what we it's what we get points for but be lying to say that there isn't an aesthetic kind of appeal and you know often implementation. I remember Adrian used to say to me, if you can choose the pretty version of something that has equivalent value, then go for the pretty version. (laughs) So yeah, of course we have, we're all esthetes to some extent, aren't we? So I think there is an element of that, but no, the stopwatch is what counts, obviously.
1: From that very first car that you create and start from, when you say, okay, we're working from this point, from first getting that finished car on screen to getting it on track to run for the very first time, how long does that take?
2: Ah, well, that is a somewhat evolution, because I mean, I described earlier that the chassis has to be released before anything's mature. So there are releases that evolve during the release process that aren't associated with the definitive car. The definitive car converges in mid-January, but starts being released in late September. So I suppose the evolution to have that baseline on the screen that you asked for is from September to January. From having parts of that release into production, probably run from November... To February. So they kind of superpose. It's not that you say, I finished the car, now I release it. It has to be in, in incremental. bits because some bits have longer lead times.
0: But then I guess your first iteration was september and the first actual car that you could run would be february, february. and is that just to find my regulations and testing schedules and stuff would you take longer if you had longer or is it actually you know it's would you all have- target
2: driven yeah. all target driven because you could definitely make the car better if you took longer but obviously we're working to a target so we haven't got a choice <laughs> got a draw a line. go awesome thank you very much thank you
0: thanks for listening to drive digital success presented by ionos This was the final episode of the season, but if you haven't already, be sure to check out our previous episodes. If you've enjoyed season one, let us know by leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.